You know, last Sunday we had Bishop Joseph and Pastor Barbara Garlington in Sugar Land morning and night in the same way that you had um, um, Cindy Trim, we had Bishop Garlington kind of to climax our season of fasting and prayer. And uh, we had a great day, one of the, 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 one of the most fun, power-packed days we've had in a long time. It was really great. Some of you were there, and you're always welcome. But we had a great time, and we, I was talking to Bishop Garlington privately about what he sensed and what he was hearing in the Spirit and where we were in the church. And um, he feels like that this is going to be a very good year for you and I at Triumph. He prophesied, as did Barbara, that this was going to be a year of acceleration of expansion and growth, and uh, we received that for sure. Thank the Lord. Last year was a great year. We were mostly level, and uh, you know, level is not bad. If you're a business person, level's not bad, but uh, we believe this is a year of forward motion and uh, moving forward, and um, Bishop Garlington delivered a great word in, in that regard. I asked him what he felt like was uh, the timetable in terms of the next great move of God. And of course, no one knows that specifically, but I was interested to hear what his impressions and his feelings were. And um, he's under the impression that there is an imminent move of God coming. He feels like it's imminent. And his words were that um, the next great move of God is going to dwarf what we experienced in the 20th century. That's a good word. I received that. And uh, thank God for it. So, you know, I believe that we are positioning ourselves for what God has for us in the future. But that doesn't mean that we're idle now or that God isn't moving now or that this isn't a great day. It just means that uh, great things are ahead and we're looking forward to those as well. Um, <clears throat> you know, I'm at an age where old music sounds a little better than the new music. Strictly an age thing. It has nothing to do with spirituality or the anointing or the move of God. Nothing like that. It's just an age thing. Um, you know, I find myself gravitating toward the oldie goldies. <laughs> you know, you, you hate to admit it, but it's just the truth. At a certain age, the old music sounds a little better than the new. But it's not a spiritual thing. It's not like whose music is the best. It's just that you grew up and your life was impacted, molded, and shaped by a certain sound of music. And uh, you hear it. It makes you feel kind of young again, you know. And, and, uh, but I am very, very pleased with what I hear us singing today. Very pleased with it. Um, for me, it is not so much the melody or the style of music as it is the words and the message. The words and the message. You know, Amazing Grace is the greatest song that's ever been written or sung, hands down, greatest song. And I've heard Amazing Grace sung in so many musical styles, so many. I've heard it, uh, I've heard it sung in a corny country sound I've heard it put to rap. I've heard it in high church. I've heard it in black gospel. I've heard it in quartet music. I mean, Amazing Grace is sung in every style you could possibly sing it in, and it always will be. What makes a song the greatest song is not the way it's sung, the style of music you put it to. What makes Amazing Grace great is the words. 
It's the message. A message that has endured literally for centuries. It's the words. Well, sometimes you and I can get caught up in the style and overlook the quality of the message. Because you see, the prophetic element is not in the kind of music, the style of music, what chords we go to, what instruments lead. But the message and the prophetic element is in the words. It's the words that carry the prophetic message. And so when you just look at what the psalmists are writing and what the psalmists are saying in music, you can hear a prophetic word from God in those songs. So for the 32 years of triumph and counting, we have been singing the latest songs the psalmist write. You see, I know that psalmists hear a sound in, from heaven and they translate that into music. And when it is translated, it sounds current and fresh and new according to their generation and their culture. But it originates from the heart of God. And so when we choose songs, we're not just trying to choose popular songs. We're choosing songs that have a prophetic element to them that is saying what God wants us to say. Not in this church, but in some churches, they're singing the same songs that you and I are singing, that have the same prophetic message in them, but the preachers aren't preaching the same message that the songs are saying. And if you listen to what the pastors are saying and you listen to what the songs are saying, it's like they don't hardly go together. That's not true here. We are preaching what we're singing. But when you and I sing the same songs, it's, it's like a cry to God. It has a prophetic element to it in the sense that it is prophesying the future. But then it is also the cry of our collective hearts unto God. We're asking God for something. We're welcoming God. And so what we're singing is vitally important to where we're going, what we're expecting, what we're believing God for. So I started this morning just to challenge you to, to read the words. Don't just sing the melodies, but read the words. Let that be the cry of our heart. So even if you were to attend a church that wasn't preaching the same message of the songs, when all the people are, are singing that message, the people's voice is stronger than the pastor's voice because it's the collective heart of the people. And you know, all over America and even the world, they're singing the same songs you and I are singing in every kind of church. I've been in church long enough to know that um, to remember how that, you know, the Baptists had their hymnals and the Pentecostal had their hymnals and the Methodist had theirs and the Catholic has theirs. And more and more, that's not even the case. By and large, we're all singing the same songs. So Triumph, our, our worship team tries to capture the message of the Spirit, the cry of the people's heart, the prophetic word for the church, and sing those songs. And again, it's not about melody or music styles. It's about what the Spirit is saying through the psalmist. So as long as we gather as a church, we're going to sing the latest music because we feel that's what God is saying in the right now. 
I can look back a few years and think about some great songs that molded and shaped my life that blessed me, and I love to hear them, and I love to sing them, and every once in a while our worship team will crank one up, and man, I just feel all fuzzy and warm and and gooey on the inside. But that was a, a word, a prophetic psalm from another day and another time. Doesn't mean it doesn't have value and significance. It just means it's not what God is saying today. There are a few songs that transcend seasons. I mentioned Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace will be sung as long as there's a church because it transcends. I believe that's what hymns are. They're songs that transcend seasons. Many of our worship songs are only sung two, three years, and they're forgotten. Because they're songs of a season, and they do not transcend the seasons of the Spirit. So I want to show you some words. Put me a song up here that I asked for. I don't, I'm not going to, just whatever it is. Look, look at this. Look at the words. Forget the tune. Just look at the words. Open up the heavens. When you and I sing these songs, that's what we're doing. We're saying, God, open up the heavens. How many of you want God to open up the heavens? Well, when we sing, that's what we're saying. Put it to any music you want to put it to. The message is what has the power in it. The message is the cry of our hearts. The message is the prophetic word that God is speaking through us. He's saying, pray for me to open up heaven. So we all get together and sing, open up the heavens. We want to see you. Open up the floodgates, a mighty river. Can you hear what we're singing? Just look at the words and say, you know, this is, this, is, this is a cry of my heart. You know, it sounds a little different than it did 10 or 15 years ago. If this song would have been written 20 years ago, the melody would have been different. The chords would have been different. It would have been sung in a different key. It probably would have been keyboard driven as opposed to guitar driven. But the point is, the message is what's real. Flowing from your heart, filling every part of our praise. Give me another song. <clears throat> Spirit, break out, break our walls down. Spirit, break out, heaven come down. It's a message. It's the cry of our heart. It's what God wants to do. And so the way he gets things done is he speaks to us and gives us the prayer we should pray and the psalms we should sing. And then we begin to pray the will of God. And that's what he does. You don't want to know what's, you want to know what's ahead for the church? You want to know what God has in store for us in 2016? Just read the screen. Spirit, break out. Break our walls down. Spirit, break out. Heaven, come down. That's what's in store for us because that's what we're praying and that's what we're believing God for. This is our heart. Are you with me here today? Give me a reaching. This song was uh, birthed out of, um, this song was birthed out of this house. Pastor Chris and Pastor Brandon put this song together. Is this reaching? Okay. I give you all of me, Lord. Take my heart completely. Surrounded by your presence, Lord, this feels like heaven. Every chain is broken just by words you've spoken. I'm captured by your grace as your freedom overtakes me. So these are songs 
that came right out of this house. It's the psalmist gift. It's the gift of hearing what God is saying in the spirit and putting it into music. And then we all get together and sing it. And and it becomes like a prayer, a cry unto God. It becomes a prophetic word about our future. And so I thought today I would sit on a stool and talk to you as if we were sitting in my living room. And you were on my couch and my recliner and some were sitting on the steps and some were sitting around the floor. And I just have a real straight talk with you from my heart today. I'm asking you to read the words and realize how powerful they are. I just picked two or three songs here, but we're singing some fabulous songs that are speaking our hearts to God. I do believe that um, there are great revivals ahead. God moves in waves. There are waves of revival, and then there's an interval, and then waves of revival. This seems to be how God works. There are different models and styles of revival. Revivals have different themes like prayer or evangelism or renewal, um, revelation revivals, all these things happen. Um, I really believe that, that God has in store for us a soul-winning evangelistic revival where dozens of people give their hearts to the Lord and come to salvation. And that's what I'm believing for. That's what I expect the great move, next group of God to be. Um, all revivals are a mixture of things, but there's usually one primary element that characterizes the revival. So I'm believing that that is, is what is ahead for us. Um, churches are made up of, of circles of family and friends relationships. And each one of us have a unique network of family and friends. And uh, churches grow when we tap into new networks of families and friends. They grow when you, new networks. See, what happens is when you come to Christ, um, you, you tell all your friends, you tell all your family, and you, you convert as many as you can, and then your world, if it doesn't get any bigger, you've kind of fished that pond out. Either they came to Christ or they didn't, or you're waiting for them to. But, I mean, you kind of fish that pond out. And if you don't learn how to grow your network and incorporate new people in your world, you can't win new people to Christ because there's no people in your life. And so let's say that we we all represent a network and a circle of friends and family. Uh, Once we've all fished out our network, churches quit growing. Because we've all fished out our network. My uncle used to carry me fishing when I was a kid. We'd go up to Dan B to, to fishing, uh, bass fishing. And, and uh, so we'd be slipping through the, the, the treetops. And, and uh, you know, there was a couple spots I remember as a kid that every, we'd go straight to that spot. And almost every time we'd catch fish at that spot. But we kept going to that same spot. We kept throwing in and pulling those bass out of that same treetop. And after a while, we couldn't catch anymore. We, we caught all the fish around that treetop. So he'd, he'd go by real quick and throw about two th- throws. Nothing happened. He'd keep on going. He'd go look for something else. But every day we'd just throw a couple lures out there and pull and keep going because we were to fish that spot out. But he knew that was a good spot and there'd be fish there again. So he'd just go by and throw a quick and keep moving for something else. And sometimes 
you got to know that you fish out your world. You fish out your circle. You've witnessed. You've prayed. You've shared your testimony. You've given them the gospel. You've done all you can do. And, and you just want to throw something out there occasionally. But you got to keep moving and look for new networks and new people to share your faith with. If not, your world just becomes sealed. And as a church, if, we, if all of our networks are fished out, they're like that sweet spot that my uncle used to take us fishing. After you've caught all the fish there, you've got to go on to somewhere else. And as a church, we're at a place where we need to go on to somewhere else and believe God for new conversions and, and, and new salvations and, and new networks to come in. And so the way that happens is individually we begin to open our world and say, you know, I want to bring some new people in my world that I can influence with Christ. And so uh, I want to encourage you to, uh, I want to encourage you to do that. Will you do that? Don't keep fishing the same spot, but look for new places that you can share your faith and impact people for Christ. There's a, a strategic shift that's taking place globally, where that the ministry of the church is shifting from being pulpit-centered to congregationally-centered. Um, much of the changes that we're seeing across the board and those we're implementing here with you are designed to empower you and to activate you in ministry as opposed to it all being centered around what a few of us do here in the pulpit. At the center of that strategic shift that we've been a part of and have observed now for many years is small groups. And over a period of time, the church is shifting more and more toward the ministry of small groups. And the reason is when you take, when you implement small groups, we call them life teams, it gives the people a chance to minister to others and to be ministered to personally. It builds relationships. It challenges the people to share their faith and share their, their anointing. And so uh, s- small groups are vital to what God is doing in our day. It's not like another program or pastor had another good idea or now we're doing this because we need something new. This is a shift that's taking place all around the world in churches all over. And the whole shift is about getting the people to use what they have and to, to, to reach people in their world. But it gets very comfortable just to come to church and listen to a charming young man like my son preach and, and teach and, and tell funny stories and pray over you and prophesy over you and just keep putting one more layer of blessing, one more layer of knowledge, just keep blessing. And a lot of people, they go to church as consumers. It's just like I go to a church that blesses me. And if the blessing me factor is high, they stay. And if not, they look for somewhere else where they're blessed. Well, You know, we all want to be blessed at church. It's not like we don't want to be blessed at church. But we can't come to church with a consumer mentality. We have to come to church in a sense that I'm a contributor, not a consumer. And I have a ministry that my church empowers me and strengthens me and equips me for. But my ministry is not so much in church as it is in the world I live in from day to day. Thank you. Thank you for that. I want to give you an encouragement. First of all, and I have a slide for this, read through your Bible this year. Some of you are already doing that. And this version app we're using makes it so stinking easy, nobody's got an excuse. If you've got a smartphone, 
I'm telling you, get your YouVersion app and uh, get the whole year Bible reading plan and start reading every day. Just pick it up right now and start going. It takes you about maybe 15 minutes a day. It's not much more than that. Uh, on the app, it's, you, know, you can pick your version. I'm reading the New Living Translation this year. Um, it also has a, a little button I push, and it'll read the verses to me. And so the most powerful way for me is to read the verses and let it read it to me as I'm reading it. That's really powerful because, you know, it, it's read perfectly, beautifully. They pronounce all the strange names correctly. And, and, and you know, you can just go down through there and it's reading it to you. And you're reading the words and, the, and you're hearing it it's simultaneously. Just a powerful tool. And, um, and then sometimes if you get caught and you didn't get your reading done this morning, no problem. Turn it on while you're going to work. Before you get to work, you'll have read, read uh, your portion for that day. There's just no excuses. And so I want to encourage you to read through the Bible. It's an important part. Increase your prayer time. Um, learn how to pray small segments of time throughout the day. Learn how to steal precious moments. Better to walk in the Spirit throughout the day and have short moments of prayer and contact with God uh, than it is to bank it all up for one time during the day. My schedule can change, and I may have a time set aside to seek the Lord in prayer, but one little change, one phone call, and that time's wiped out. But if I'm praying throughout the day and I'm stealing moments, drive time is really good for me. I spend a lot of time driving, a really great time. But just steal those moments to have prayer in contact with God. It keeps you connected all through the day and all through the night. So I'm just asking you to increase your prayer time. And in rather saying I'm going to pray one hour, two hours instead of one or one hour instead of 30 minutes, just try to increase the frequency during the day. And it, it, it keeps you walking with the Lord. It keeps the Spirit of the Lord closer and more in contact. And, um, you know, don't, don't let yourself just drift off and get ju just totally involved in the or day's work and the house and the kids and the job and the car and the cat. And, 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 and just stay connected throughout the day. You know, for me, I speak in tongues day and night. And uh, I'm constantly praying in tongues throughout the day, quietly or even silently when I'm alone, just quietly, just praying in tongues. And um, I, I, I use repetitive things like, thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for your goodness to me. And just throughout the day, if you just make it a part of your conscious and unconscious conversation, it just keeps you walking in the Spirit and connected with God. And so... In this way, I'm asking you to walk in the Spirit. Just stay connected. Like, don't lose the signal. Don't lose the signal. It's better than Wi-Fi. Walk in the Spirit. Um, also, care about people and pray over them. Care about people. If you want God to use you, you've got to love people. The stinking ones. The mean ones. The ones that don't like you. Would rather you not be in their life. Love people. Care about people. Care about their hurts and their pains. Don't condemn them. Care about them. Pray for them. Pray with them. Talk to them about it. Uh, you know, uh, I have a segment of my world that is mostly unbelievers, mostly. Good people, but unbelievers. 
And uh, I'm just constantly injecting the Lord into the conversation. Constantly thanking Jesus for the least of things. Constantly promising I'm going to pray about this. I'm asking God to do this. And I just make it a part of my conversation. You know, I refuse to become someone else when I'm with unbelievers. I just refuse to become someone else. I'm determined that what I am with you right here, right now, I'm going to be everywhere I am with whomever I may be. Whatever I am right here, I'm going to be that everywhere. Brother Willie, I didn't walk in here and put on my preacher clothes, my preacher voice, and my preacher image, and my preacher... No, no. What you see is what you get. And I want to challenge you to be the same, because it's easy for you to be one thing in this church and be something else when you hit the work. It's easy. Just be whatever you are. Set the standard in the house of God and then maintain that standard throughout the week. And so these are just some suggestions that I want to stir up your heart. I know you're great people. You love God and I'm talking your language today. So I want to give you some practical suggestions that will really be a help to you. I never have enough time. I'm always in a rush. Someday I'm going to get to preach and teach and not have to look at the clock. But until then, let me get moving. Acts chapter 2, verse 42 through 46. This is what I call the profile of a New Testament church. And now remember, Peter just preached the gospel for the first time on the day of Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out. 3,000 people was added to the church at that first message. And this is a summary of what the church was like immediately after the, uh, the outpouring of the Spirit on the day of Pentecost. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and in fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, here's the profile of a New Testament church. I'm going to back it up. They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. That means teaching and preaching the Word of God. It's a vital element of what is a New Testament church. And then it said fellowship. That's relationship building, that's interacting, that's spending your life together, that's enjoying the body of Christ and believers. Fellowship is an important part of what we do. Life teams is a big fellowship element there. It's a vital part of a New Testament church. Then they, um, in breaking of bread, now this would be communion. They would break bread together. And then they would eat, drink the wine and eat the bread and they would observe the, the, the communion together. And in prayers, prayer, a major element of what the New Testament church was about, uh, prayers. Verse 43, and then fear came on every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the, the apostles. Signs and wonders, the supernatural, God answering prayer, God doing miracles. This is a New Testament church. This is a part of who we are. This is our foundation. This is our root. We believe in the supernatural. We believe in signs, wonders, and miracles. It's a part of who we are. Next verse, please. Now all who believe were together and had all things in common, verse 44, and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Verse 46. Now these verses talk about a caring community. It doesn't mean we're all supposed to sell out, liquidate, and bring the money to the church. That's happened in history. It might happen again. That's not the daily rule. But what is the daily rule? We care about people and we share our blessings with others that need it. That's the rule across the centuries. So continuing daily in one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house. Now, so here you have the two, the, the two legs of ministry. 
in the temple. That's where they gathered corporately at Solomon's porch. And the apostles would teach them and train them and pray over them and bless them. And then they would send them out house to house. And so you have the corporate gathering and you have the small group gathering. And it's like the two legs that I walk on. It gives the church mobility when you have great corporate church and you have great small groups. It takes both to make the church move forward. If we confine it all to the house of God and all to church and all to me and Pastor Randon, it limits the church as far as the impact that we're making in our world. But when you add house to house, that element of going and meeting and activating the body of Christ and getting them involved in ministry, suddenly the church begins to move forward and be what we were called to be. The title of my message today is Awakening the Sleeping Giant. You are a sleeping giant. And when you begin to live what you believe and share what you've experienced and give away what God has given you, there is a huge impact on the community. The devil's intent is to, is to enclose us in church walls and confine everything we do in here, but never let it translate into the daily life that we live in. But by the help and grace of God, we are awakening the sleeping giant. Last year, we chose to discontinue Wednesday night services. Uh, that's a very, very difficult transition for pastors to lead in. We all value teaching, preaching, all age groups. Wednesday night's a part of our heritage, a part of our lives. And to give up Wednesday night is a very difficult thing because we know the value it's had across the, the ages. But the fact is, small groups have a far greater potential of impact than Wednesday nights. And we saw this shift happening around the world, and we said, we've got to be a part of what God's doing today. And we want small groups to become the ministry of this church, a vital element, a vital part of what we do. And you know, week after week, I hear tremendous reports from people that are having great experiences in small groups, building relationships, having fun, just old-fashioned fun, praying for one another, sharing scripture, the prophetic gift flowing, gifts of healing flowing, friends coming in, and it's just, it works. It works because we're awakening the sleeping giant of the church and saying, take what you have been given and do something with it. Create an environment where God can use you and bless you and you can be a part of what he's doing in the world around you. I want to encourage you to get involved if you aren't already. So the day of Pentecost 3000 came to the church. Um, I gave you the profile of a New Testament church and I, I want to read verse 46. Did I get to that one? Verse 46, I want to show you where there. So continuing daily one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, the eighth their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Hit verse 47 for me if you've got it. I might not have given Praising God and having favor with all the people. The Lord, look at that word added. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. This is the will of God that he would daily add to the church. But I want you to watch what happens. We go to chapter 4. 5,000 men came to Christ in a single day. And in chapter 6, the church became such a loving, caring community that the apostles no longer could manage the 
function of the church and they began to raise up strong men we would later call them deacons and they raised up deacons and these were men of of great faith and authority and great character and God used them in great ways uh, in chapter 7 6 verse 7 the Bible says that the number of disciples multiplied in verse chapter 2 God was adding but by the time we get to chapter 6, he's multiplying. So the church took off exponentially from Jerusalem and just began to grow in exponential terms. First it was addition, then it was multiplication. First it was the apostles. Now it's dozens of men and women that are leading God's people. And, and the Bible teaches that God used them in a powerful, powerful way. Acts chapter 7, persecution breaks out because the devil's not going to sit idly by while you and I win over his kingdom. So persecution broke out, and whereas they had favor with all men, in chapter 2, in chapter 7, the, the pendulum started swinging, and suddenly they were being uh, persecuted. In Acts chapter 8, Saul was giving, uh, Acts chapter 7, Stephen was martyred, the first church martyr. Acts chapter 8, Saul, who later would become the Apostle Paul, was given authority to arrest and harass all the people that were followers of Jesus Christ. So in a matter of, of months, they went from being popular, accepted, having favor, multiplying exponentially. They went to being chased and robbed and beaten and imprisoned. I'll tell you, folks, things can change fast. And it did for the early church. <clears throat> but listen to what happened. Let's go to Acts 8, 4 through 8. This is what happened next. Therefore, those who were scattered because of the persecution went everywhere preaching the word. Verse 5. Then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them. Verse 6. And the multitudes with one accord heeded the things spoken by Peter, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. Verse 7. For unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out of many who were possessed and many who were paralyzed and lame were healed. Verse 8, and there was great joy in that city. Amen, amen. So first they were popular. Now they're being imprisoned. They're scattered everywhere. They had to leave their homes, lost their jobs, lost their land. They were in big, big trouble. So they go everywhere looking for a safe place to raise their family. But everywhere they went, they preached and shared what they experienced in Christ. And everywhere they went, the fires of revival were lit and churches were being built. And instead of the devil containing the church and snuffing out its life, he suddenly opened it up and it exploded everywhere. Because everywhere saints were scattered in persecution, churches were built and people were converted to Christ. So sometimes persecution is a good thing. And when you read the history of the church over the last 2,000 years, you find out that the church thrives in persecution and becomes lethargic and carnal in acceptance and approval. I see the pendulum swinging in America. And uh, we're coming into a great hour of the church because the church is more and more under attack and the Christians are more and more being persecuted. It's only just begun. The two greatest elements you have is your personal testimony and the Word of God you've stored in your heart. Your personal testimony and the Word of God you've stored in your heart. That's, that's, that's the two 
instruments God gives you to win people to Him. Your testimony, well, it starts with how you got saved. It goes to other great experiences you've had in your lifetime, difficult times you've came through, temptations you've overcome, bondages of sin that's been broken, uh, things that God has done for your life, His blessings on your family, jobs He's given you, homes He's given you. All of that is your testimony, what God has done for you. And there's no greater weapon or instrument of, of evangelism that you have than just telling what God has done in your life. If I were to ask you to raise your hand today and say, how many of you had great things happen in life? All of you would have your hands in the air because he's done great things. But when is the last time you told somebody about the great things he's done? And then finally, it's the Word of God. You, you sit here, you're taught the Word of God, you know the Scripture. I go to these verses and, and, and as I'm going there, I'm saying, they've heard these verses a million times. They know them better than I know them. The Word of God stored in your heart is a powerful tool. I want to show you Isaiah chapter 55, verse 11. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void. That word void means empty or unfruitful. But it shall accomplish what I please. It shall prosper in the things for which I sent it. So the word of God as it goes through your heart and through your lips and through your life is a powerful force. And God said when you speak my word it will not return void, empty or unfruitful. But it will accomplish the purpose to which it is sent. Ladies and gentlemen in this modern age, in this modern modern secular world that we live in. The gospel is just as powerful as it was in the first century. When you are sharing the love of Christ, the salvation message, the goodness of God, simple verses and passage of scripture, you're sharing the most powerful message the world has ever seen and it's entirely supernatural. So don't think the gospel has gotten old-fashioned and to share someone about the birth the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is like old music that no one listens to. The gospel's never getting old. It's still powerful. And when you share the gospel, God said, my word will not return void, but it will accomplish what I have called it to accomplish. So your greatest tool is your testimony, what God's done in your life, and the scripture that you've stored in your heart the gospel. So share it freely and share it with everyone. Make it a part of your life. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 and 12 says this, he himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. And this is why he gave these gifts for the equipping of the saints, for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So God's pattern is for us to equip you so that you'll be effective in the world you live in. The problem is we equip, 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 and it stops right there. And so, you know, I'm encouraging you to use what you already know, use what you already have, and share it with those around you, and let God use you in a very great way. We're called to be equippers. This is the classroom. The world you live in is the harvest field. So I want to encourage you in this way. Um, I realize that um, you've heard this before as well. <clears throat> there's four harvest fields that I want you to be mindful of. I, 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 I want to make it easy for you. There's four harvest fields, four groups of people that you should have your radar turned on and realize these are the best harvest fields we have where the people are most likely 
to hear your message, to be receptive to your testimony, okay? The first harvest field is the next generation. You know, we have children come up, coming up every day, and they are the ripest harvest field. Um, how many of you gave your heart to the Lord before you turned 18? Let me see your hand. You gave your heart to the Lord before you turned 18. If you look around, it's more than 50% of this congregation gave their hearts to the Lord before age 18. It's the new generation. And we have to put great emphasis on reaching the new generation. Um, second is new move-ins. With all the industry going on here, we've got people moving in from all over the world. That is a huge harvest field. New job, new house, new school, new stylist, new insurance agent, new dentist, new family doctor, new church, new life, fresh beginning, start over, good friends, stop what we were doing and start something new. New move-ins are a ripe harvest field. And so when you see new move-ins, you say, man, I, I got to get to that person. They're just moving into the air. They're going to need a church. Crisis evangelism. Be alert when you realize someone's going through a crisis. That's a great time for you to pray for them, pray with them. A great time to show that you really care and that God is able to help them in that crisis. Could be a health crisis, could be a marriage crisis, could be something with the kids, could be a financial crisis. I mean, it can be all kind of crisis. But remember that crisis evangelism has always been the most productive harvest field. Because, you know, when people's lives are going like perfect and everything's good, they got it, man. Why make any changes? I got it right where I want it. Then all of a sudden something breaks down. They start looking like, man, what's going wrong with my life? Crisis evangelism. So you keep your radar on. Keep your radar on. When you realize somebody's going through something, say, man, this is my opportunity. I'm going to ramp up my prayer for them. I'm going to start loving and caring for them. I'm going to pray for them. I'm going to ask if I can pray with them. Crisis evangelism. Keep your radar on. This is, this is where you really come. You shine. And then finally, unfulfilled Christians. This is the last one. Um, but you know, uh, there's a lot of churches that are void of, of the Holy Spirit. They're void of anything real and valid. They're, they're monuments. They're tombs. They're museums of the past. And so there are Christians out there that just, they're unfulfilled. And they've about given up on God and church. And you've got to realize there's a lot of good people that aren't plugged into the church. We call them unchurched, unchurched. They may or may not be saved, but they're not going to church. They're not involved. They're not living a Christian life. And, and that's a great people that already have roots in the faith. They've already got commitment there that sometimes you can take them and nurture them and cause that tree to be fruitful again. Okay, I want to go to John chapter 7. I'm trying to hurry and get done here. Um, I, I'm sorry to rush, but um, I got a lot on my heart today. I'm just trying to get the highlights for you. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet crucified. So Jesus said, out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. God wants us to live with an overflow. You see, I already know how hard it is to pray if you're strictly praying by self-discipline. 
I already know how difficult it is to read your Bible if it's strictly self-discipline. Well, I know I got to do this. I know this is the right thing to do. And, and, and so I got I to gotta suck it up and get it done. I know how hard that is. And I know how hard it is to witness to someone when you're just doing it because you, you feel guilty for not doing it. And so maybe if I do it, I can get rid of the guilty feeling. I can check that off my list. I know how hard that is. But on the other hand, when you have an overflow... not hard at all it's fun you don't have to think put a tie a string around your finger and say now remember witness about Christ today you don't need to string around your finger to remember when you're living in the overflow it just overflows and prayer just happens all the time even when you don't plan it and caring about others just comes natural when you're living in the overflow. But sometimes the level of the Spirit gets low in our life, and, and all we've got is just raw, hard, I need to do this because it's the right thing to do, and i got to get it done. But God wants us to live in the overflow. Do you remember when you got saved? Maybe you got baptized in the Holy Spirit for the first time. Remember what it was like living in the overflow? You were telling everybody without even a thought. You didn't even know how over the top you were. But you were living in the overflow. And I believe God wants us to live in the overflow where there's something bubbling up. It's not about just doing it because you're supposed to and pastor said you did and the Bible said you did. And I feel guilty for not doing it so I got to get rid of the gift so I get, get it done so I can lay down and out and feel like I'm the real deal. Hey, that's not the way God wants us to live. He wants to live in the overflow. When you're living in the overflow, it's fun, it's easy, it works, it's good. So I want to encourage you to live in the overflow. Here's some suggestions on how you can live there. First of all, ramp up your personal devotion. It's impossible to live in the overflow if you don't have some degree of personal devotion in your life. You've got to, have, you've got to ramp that up. You've got to learn how to walk in the Spirit throughout the day, not just once a day, but throughout the day. Uh, have God on your mind and on your lips. you also got to have the right identity. Most people don't witness for Christ because they don't have the right identity. Their self-image is wrong. They, they're a macho man or they're really cool or whatever. But the, their image is not that of a genuine Christian that loves people and is always trying to help people with the good news of Jesus. That's not their image. They got the wrong image. And if you have the wrong image, then you're never going to get it done. Because if, if you start talking about Christ, it contradicts the image you've already built in front of them. You know, you can't tell nasty jokes one minute and quote scriptures the next and expect to get anything done. You've got to have the right image. And go ahead and get it on out there. You'll like yourself a lot better if you will. <laughs> Care about people. Help them every way you can. Pray over them. Pray with them. Make your faith a part of your conversation. Make it a part of your conversation. Just make it the way you talk. It's your semantics. It's your vernacular. It's your, it's your, it's your uh, vocabulary. It's just it's who I am. It just comes out. I open my mouth and boom, it comes out because it's in there. And it's... Make it a part of your vocabulary, your conversation. Be sure you take advantage of every opportunity to love people and care about their needs. Just take advantage of every opportunity. And certainly invite them to a life team or invite them to church. Can you say amen?
Okay, somebody's going to get this today. I can just tell. I really know that the Lord talked to my heart about the overflow. And that's what I want to pray, that God would just give us an overflow so that we would just be living for Him and serving and helping and loving people out of the overflow. How many of you want to live in the overflow? Out of your belly shall flow a river of living water. He spoke of the Spirit when he said this. Let's stand together. I pray, Lord, that you would give each and every one of us an overflow of your Spirit. Like a mighty river, it would gush up out of our innermost being. A river full of joy and compassion. A river full of peace and love. A river full of hope. A river full of faith. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would cause us to live with an abundance of your good Holy Spirit in our hearts and lives. May the people of God be blessed and use them in every area of their lives. Wherever they go, whomever they see, Lord, use them for your glory and the good of the people. And may the overflow spill out to everyone. I speak this blessing on you all in Jesus' name. Everybody say, yes. Yes. Thank the Lord. Thank the Lord.